This episode of Ministry Monday is sponsored by GIA Publications. Rooted in tradition with a clear focus on the future, Gather 4th Edition from GIA Publications features a diverse roster of composers and a wide breadth of musical styles in a worthy hardbound hymnal. Gather 4th Edition. Learn more at giamusic.com forward slash hymnals. From NPM, the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, this is episode 209 of Ministry Monday. Ministry Monday is a weekly podcast about music, ministry, and liturgy, produced by the National Association of Pastoral Musicians, or NPM. What is NPM? NPM is a national association that fosters the art of musical liturgy. The members of NPM serve the Catholic Church in the United States as musicians, clergy, liturgists, and other leaders of prayer. For more information, go to npm.org forward slash join. Have a question? Email us anytime at ministrymonday at npm.org. Hello, and welcome to Ministry Monday. I am your host, Amanda Bruce. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to Ministry Monday wherever you listen to your podcasts each week. And hey, thanks for joining us today. Well, choir season is quickly approaching. We know that you are planning which choir anthems to use, the rehearsal schedule, and of course, the plans for each rehearsal. But in this episode, we encourage you to pause and think about the needs of a choir a little bit differently this fall. Today, my guest is Stephen Warner. Stephen Warner is the founder of the Notre Dame Folk Choir and, until recently, worked for the Notre Dame Newman Center for Faith and Reason in Dublin, Ireland. One of Steve's many gifts lies in his ability to foster true inclusion and listening in his ensembles. Today we focus on the special qualities that elevate ensembleship within a choir, most of which are not actually music. Today on Ministry Monday, I'm speaking to Stephen Warner. Hi, Steve. How are you? Hi, Amanda. It's great to talk to you from the Blue Ridge Mountains again. I am so glad to be talking to you in this time zone because when we have last spoken, <laughs> when we last talked on Ministry Monday, you were in Ireland. And I distinctly remember that one of our interviews took place at six in the morning for me. So I'm very thrilled that you are on East Coast time today. <laughs> me too. And it's, although it's, you know, it's not an excuse for you not to have your Starbucks this morning. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. But it's nice to be on the same time zone too. Good, yep. good. Now, so just in case anyone doesn't know, of course, um, you have recently, like you said, you recently moved to the Blue Ridge Mountains from Ireland. Would you mind just sharing just a little bit about that? Sure. I, what I would share to lead off with is just to say that retirement is an extremely slip, slippery word, just a really slippery <laughs> word. And I'm, I'm, um, uh, I came back from Dublin a year ago. Um, and uh, I would say that it's just been a wonderful thing to get back and reintegrated into the United States. Uh, but I have a lot of projects on my desk. I didn't think I was going to. I thought I was going to be just kind of quiet. But I'm really, really glad to be back. And in the midst of, um, for instance, going to NPM in Louisville was an absolute 
joy to be back. And it's like, these are my peeps. And, <laughs> um, and to be able to meet up with people that I hadn't seen in like five or six years. So it's lovely to be back and, and great to be uh, back in the midst of a lot of different liturgical projects. And finally, all of us, and I could just, I'm sure this will resonate both with you and all of the listeners starting to come out of COVID and watching uh, watching voices begin to reemerge again, choral programs beginning to reemerge. And there's something about hearing a choir after two and a half years, it just kind of brings tears to your eyes at first. Um, so it's it's great to be back. And actually, I'm glad you started with that, too, because that, that's one of the things I'd really like to focus on during our time today is, um, just in case anyone's listening and doesn't know, you were the founder of the Notre Dame Folk Choir. Um, and that is actually how I, you know, got to know you, at least musically initially, because um, I know the Notre Dame Folk Choir's recordings. I listened to the Folk Choir perform at an NPM convention once. Um, and one of the things that really led me to reaching out to you for this interview is that, and I know I shared this with you already off the air, but one of the things that I loved about all of those Notre Dame Folk Choir recordings is that when um, there would be different solos or different voices would just take a, a verse, if you will, on their own, the, the voices were always so authentic. And it's not that they're not typically, but I could tell and always have that you chose voices that were not necessarily operatic, but they were so prayerful. And so that's kind of where I want to start today. And I kind of want to just talk about your own philosophy with cultivating true ensembleship with a choir or some type of singing ensemble. Yeah, great. So we've got about 17 different avenues that we can <laughs> that we can move from on that on that lovely introduction, which means, you know, we'll talk more. Um, first of all, your comments were about um, the recordings. So um, I'll talk about that first and then maybe move backwards, um, because obviously the choir comes first before mm -hmm. recordings. Um, there are some things about the about folk choir recordings that were kind of embedded in my in my ethos right from the start. Number one, we never used a click track um, in any of the things that we do. For those of you that have never been in a studio, a click track kind of keeps you in. Um, it's like a, an overdubbed metronome marking, if you will, that keeps you on track with things. But I I always felt, and we never used a trick uh, a, a click track in our work. I always felt that. Liturgical music was its own genre. It is its own genre. And because of that, that sort of felt rallentando at the end of a verse, it, it makes it a little hairy when you're trying to record things, but there's a sense of the living liturgy with them. So we tried as much as possible, and we did this to lay it all down at the same time. Um, and that changes the way something sounds. So that's one thing just to state. The second thing, thank you for the observation, and it, it is in no way demeaning toward the soloist to say they aren't operatic. Um, I always thought about when I when I would choose soloists for folk choir recordings, it was almost like casting. Um, who has the voice, um, the timbre, um, and the spirit to be able to convey this the best? And they, they weren't maybe necessarily... Um, the standouts at times, but they would be the ones that I knew would authentically, you use that word and I think that's wonderful. Um, they are the ones that would be able to portray 
the text that was being put forward, um, illustrate the text in the best way. Um, a colleague of mine, a uh, former editor of mine, uh, had once said that liturgical music at its best is honest music. And I think that's a great quote. Um, I use it often in, in workshops. And so when you think about that by way of a soloist, the, the person that can bring that forward in an honest and beautiful way, um, I think are, are worthy of stepping in front of a microphone. And if I may say, and I've thought about this because I was actually listening to this, I was listening to a recording this morning. Um, this will date me, um, but deal with it. Um, I was listening to Van Morrison. So Van Morrison is the guy that sang Moondance and a bunch of songs like that. When you listen to Van Morrison, he is not a clean singer. <laughs> this is not a crooner. He's got a, and he's a little bit like Bob Dylan that way. And when you think about some of the more intriguing voices over the years that have actually made it by themselves, not all of them are crooners. Some of them have an authenticity. That's a great word that you used. They have an authenticity that um, that opens up a text. So people like Van Morrison or um, who else? Bob Dylan or even Willie Nelson. You know, I know we're getting far afield, but the the, the principles are are true here. People that can actually bring a text to life. So that sense of that sense in a recording of um, of having a sort of living experience of hearing something. A congregation sings a song a certain way. And what I was trying to do with the recordings was to make it sound like it belonged in church and not in a studio. And then along with that, the, the soloists um, to give a sense of really great illustration and spirituality to the, to the text was another thing to consider in choosing all of that. And these were our young, enthusiastic, uh, evangelical um, college students who are in many ways just discovering their faith. And I think one of the great things about the recordings was that you sense that as they're as they're standing in front of a microphone. Right. So then let's let's go back a little bit, you know, so let, let's talk about the choir um, itself. So the Notre Dame Folk Choir, one of the things, again, that you really cultivated was this listening ear, prayerful listening ear among the students. And, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember correctly, the Notre Dame Folk Choir wasn't necessarily made of all music majors, correct? Oh, very, very few, actually. Um, in fact, over the years, usually there were not more than maybe three or four a year that were music majors out of an ensemble of 60 to 65. So, wow. yeah. And and actually, I thought that that brought a real sense of, of vitality to the ensemble because some of them were business majors. Some of them were, um, were from political science. Others were pre-med. So there was a real... And and some of them were deeply conservative and some of them were crazy liberals. And and in a sense, that was like a microcosm of the church. And my goal with all of them was to let them all know that their voices were needed. They were important and they were needed no matter where they came from. I remember this will be a little anecdote for you, but um, in terms of that sort of hodgepodge, that beautiful hodgepodge, which is the church. When Obama was named to be commencement speaker at the University of Notre Dame, all craziness just kind of broke loose on campus. And there was to be a prayer service um, to start out the, um, the um, graduation weekend. 
And so I, the psalm that was to be used for that prayer service was Psalm 104, send forth your spirit, O Lord, and renew the face of the earth. My two cantors that were in the pulpit that night to sing that responsorial psalm, one of them was Knights of Columbus, tremendously conservative young man. The other was way off the charts, liberal Catholic. Um, and they stood side by side together. And they were approached afterwards by news people looking for of story and looking for combative language. And they didn't get anything from my two singers. It was like, you know, that's where they're coming from. This is where I'm coming from. But most important, we sing together. It was breathtaking <laughs> to see two young people who could see, we don't get, we don't see eye to eye, but we are the church. Um, to see that sort of um, reciprocity and that respect for each other was, I think, one of the best hallmarks of the choir. Um, and that came partly from praying. I would say um, every Tuesday night when we would end a rehearsal, we would end with Chrysogonus Waddell's Hail Holy Queen, hmm. which is this mystical, mystical, non-time um, non signature thing that just floats in the air. Um, and then on Thursday night, when we would end our rehearsal, we always ended with our SATV version of Day is Done. And then we opened it up to um, communal prayer. And it was probably some of the most sacred moments of, in spite of all the work that we did, or in the midst of all the work we did, it was the foundation for what we did, which was to always conclude our rehearsals with prayer. And we turned off the lights in the rehearsal room, and we lit candles and had an icon of the Blessed Mother in front of the choral rehearsal area. And I would say that we all hung our hats on those experiences. So, um, and out of that, a voice emerged. Out of that, a choral voice emerged. Um, now I can talk about that technically and say, um, for somebody that's a chorister in the folk choir, there was as much time spent on listening as there was in projection because we can talk about you know how you shape your vowels where do you put closing consonants how do you breathe how do you sing through the sung consonants all those kind of technical things but music is a listening art as much as a creating art and the best choirs i think are the ones that actually you can sense this sort of horizontal communication with each other and not just the vertical um, pushing forward of of sound, which in some ways um, is not musical. Um, we have to be constantly listening to one another, or we're not uh, we're not doing a communal act of um, of art or worship. So um, a lot of a, a lot of time was spent um, just listening to one another. And practically, what I would do is on Tuesdays and Thursdays we would sing by parts, but on Sundays everybody sang next to a different part. So that you had this wonderful, they owned their parts by that point, but everybody around them had an S-A-T-B next to them. They were all like little clusters of four part so that they got used to hearing all how all their parts merged and, and, and emerged with one another, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. And so not only that, you've, you know, it, it seems to me like when I've done that, it fosters independence, but interdependence at the same time. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, we were talking about this a little earlier, but just to put it on air, um, you don't, you rarely get a chance to name a choir. And I've only done that twice in my life. Um, once was with the folk choir 
And the second was in, in Dublin when I named the ensemble the Volcare Ensemble. And the idea behind that was very much to talk about um, finding your voice, uh, vocation, vocare, is about finding your direction, finding where you're meant to be. And that has all kinds of levels in a choir, uh, a faith dimension, an, an identity dimension, a career dimension, an avocation dimension, all of those things enter into it. And I think it's actually one of the great services that a choir can do for an individual is to actually help them find out who they are um, and, and celebrate that no matter who they are and no matter what their dispositions are is to help them find out who they are and hold that up as a God-given gift. And one, what better way to illustrate that but then to do it through the human voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So if someone's listening to this and they want to start to kind of cultivate that, and I'm sensing too, it's also, it's not just music, but it's also a sense of community. Um, what are some of the things that they can do to start to foster that sense of listening and mutual understanding within a choir? So um, one thing that this just happened about a week ago, I was working uh, in a choir, singing in a choir, and the choral director said, I want you all to just sing a note. And I'm not going to tell you what that note is. And I'm going to ask you to see what happens when you do that. So he just raised his hand. He gave the ictus and we're all take a breath and then boom, we're all in. And within five seconds, we had all created a chord by listening to one another. And I thought, isn't this fascinating. Isn't this fascinating? I'd never done a choral drill like that before. I have my own kind of toolbox of warm-ups and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the idea of, of actually out of nowhere creating harmony and no, not a word was said. And it was just remarkable to see that. So for those of you that are choral directors, that's like a little pro tip. I just learned it last week after all my years. It's one of the great things about working with different choir masters and, and choir mistresses that you get pick up all these kind of great tools. That's that's a musical tool. Um, the other thing that I would say is, and this may sound like choir 101, but a choir is a community. And not only is it a community, it's a leaven community. And I, I'm very intent on that. A choir, if it's doing what it should be doing, is leaven for the entire assembly. Uh, it is it is the starting point, giving permission to the rest of the congregation to be full-throated and full-voiced in what they do. A good choir isn't just a performance choir, at least in the liturgical sense. A good choir is actually giving permission to the assembly to be spiritual and to be vocal about their spirituality. Now, in order to do that, the choir also has to be a good community together. And one of the things that I loved about the folk choir, in fact, it was in some ways, it drove me nuts about the folk choir, was that they all loved each other so much. And it's like, we get to the beginning of our rehearsal, and it's like, well, you guys just shut up. So <laughs> we got to get some work done here. I know you love each other, but go out and have a beer afterwards. Um, <laughs> but there was this sense, Chris Aganis Waddell always said this, and it, it just made me glow. Um, we would often go down. In fact, every year we would go down to the Abbey of Gethsemane. And he, he said, you know, um, now think about this. 50 college students going down to a, a cloistered monastery. I mean, you can think of nothing more um, maybe disparate than that. Um, and Chris Aganis always said, you can hear the love coming a mile away. Hmm. Um, and, and I honestly, I, I took great heart in that because it was clear 
that they just thoroughly loved and enjoyed one another, which is one of the reasons why uh, I think traveling with them, even though we were, my wife and I were in local parentis with 50 students, what were we nuts? Um, <laughs> but it, it, it was such a joy to travel with them. And yes, there was some drama and, you know, it, there was always some kind of thing that went wrong in a tour, but those are the things that happened. But by and large, you look back on the 35 years and say, my God, what a beautiful, beautiful witness of all these young men and women loving one another and and loving and respecting each other, not not um, in the uh, despite their their differences, but partly because of their differences, that they could embody diversity and respect for one another that way. So um, the notion that a choir is leaven to the assembly um, that comes from building community. And and yes, you can talk about strategies for it, but in the end, it I really do think it rests on the pillars of grace and prayer. Mm. Being open, being vulnerable to pray with one another. Um, and that opens up all kinds of doors if, if you are willing to go in that direction. And for us, it got to the point, we, we actually kept carving time out. I, I, I finally had to say ten, a good 10 minutes maybe more sometimes had to be given over at the end of rehearsal for prayer. And it was not wasted time. It was absolutely not. Um, and there would be all sometimes, especially as you approach Holy week, it was like, we got 25 pieces of music to learn, <laughs> but, um, but it was never, ever wasted time. So that's what I would back off on that and take, take a look at it from the formation of the choir and say, it really was a, a magnificent, um, a magnificent enterprise because it was led by the Holy Spirit. And um, all you had to do was watch it happen in your midst. So a really graceful time. Oh, that sounds wonderful. So um, from maybe a more concrete standpoint or a more um, tangible standpoint too, we talked also about that authenticity, you know, that, that was so apparent. Um, how, how do you think a choir could create that authenticity and more, I should say too, like awareness of what they're singing and the depth and its role in the liturgy? Um, I always, first of all, I would, uh, I was always fond of telling stories um, to help illustrate a piece of music. In fact, it would get to the point where I would take a certain stance behind the podium and they all knew what was coming. And one of the kids in the choir would, would shout out, tell us a story, Steve. So they knew it was coming. Um, but I'll give you an example. For instance, um, I was just on another Zoom with another couple of colleagues, and we were talking about choosing a piece of music for what's going to end up being, I think, a really cool thing. The folk choir alums are descending on New York City in the middle of February for a combination um, retreat and choir concert at St. Paul the Apostle. So there's my little blurb for that for, for the moment. But um, we were we were talking about a particular piece of music for communion, and the piece is called "Taste That Your Eyes May Be Opened." And the story that would go with that is this: it's based on Psalm 34. Now we all know the antiphon, "Taste and see the goodness of the Lord." But we roll that thing off our tongue, and do we understand the profundity of that short little antiphon, "Taste and see"? Stop and think about that for a minute. Do your taste buds see? And yet we throw that around nonchalantly. It's a rather strange phrase when you think about it. Your taste buds don't see. 
but your senses can open your eyes to all different things. So when I when I wrote that antiphon, I wanted to unpack that little thing and talk about how our eyes can be opened through the sense of taste, which is what Psalm 34 was getting at. So when I would approach a piece of music with the choir, there was always a little bit of catechetical instruction involved in it. It couldn't be long. It had to be short and pithy. But that's a good example of how we would do that. Now, you could go you could go about it a different way and look at it from uh, maybe a musical and an analytical way. But that isn't the way I chose to operate with my choir. I would always be looking at it from a theological, a textual, a scriptural point of view and seeing how it would serve the liturgy. That's what uh, my degrees are in liturgy. So um, you can throw away the terrorist joke. I don't care. That's the way I approach. Um, that's the way I approach my craft. And um, and I think the choir really kind of tuned into things. Even when I went over to Ireland, I would always tell little stories about um, and theological and scriptural stories as we would head into something so that they would have a little bit more background um, and sing in a more informed way. If that, I hope that answers your question. It does. Yeah, I mean, it does. It's. I so appreciate you saying that because one of the things that I've done before, too, is I, I found myself stopping in a rehearsal and saying, you know, I need you to think about what you're singing, because like you said, like when you're singing multiple songs in one night, I used to say, you know, don't let yourself be so blind to the text that you could be singing you know, telephone watermelon, because, you know, because you don't really, you're not, you're not connecting to the text, because you're just kind of almost like, well, for lack of a better, no pun intended, but you're dialing it in. Um, yeah, so, no, so yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, so to, yeah, to, to, to take that time and to kind of connect, connect textually, connect prayerfully to those things, I, I can definitely, definitely see that. Yeah. I'll give you another story. Um, I mean, this is, on a tragedy level, but it's on um, when we all experienced 9-11. And um, mm. all of us that weekend had liturgies. And what were we going to do? And a lot of places I know went to um, National Anthem and, um, and Patriotic Hymns. I did not. Um, and for the closing hymn, I chose for our congregation... Oh, God, beyond all praising. Um, and the reason why I did that, and I'll just read this text to you right now. Um, then hear, O gracious Savior, accept the love we bring, that we who know your favor may serve you as our king. And whether our tomorrows be filled with good or ill, we'll triumph through our sorrows and rise to bless you still. I just thought that that, we need to put our our trust in God, and that that hymn to me, and everybody knew it when we sang it. There were tears in the in the in the pews, and and it was like we are putting our faith in God, um, and it's not to be anti patriotic at all because we sang patriotic songs too. But we ended with putting our faith in God, and and I felt that that had to be the statement that was made that day. Um, so that's just a little bit of a story to say it isn't an either or, but in the final word, I had to go back to say, this is the hymn that served our assembly in a moment of tragedy. And we could, and I would reference back to that every once in a while. You know this hymn well, this beautiful Thaxted tune, and um, it's one of my favorites to begin with. 
But I would reference back to that over the last um, generation to call this back to mind and say, you know, there's a, there's a depth to this hymn um, that has served our community and it came out of this tragedy, this tra terrible tragedy. But we believe that resurrection has the last word. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I knew a priest who, not to dwell on death, but I, I knew a priest who um, would always ask at a funeral at the end of his homily to the family, do you think you're going to see name again? Do you think you'll see your brother again? Do you think you'll see your mother again? And, you know, they, they would nod from the pew and he goes, exactly. It's all about the resurrection. That's how we always finished. It's all um, about the resurrection. Yep. Life has the last word. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that being said, I, I so appreciate your time today on a topic too that I do think is very needed right now. I mean, I, I know that that know that so many choirs are struggling right now with numbers after COVID. I mean, and participation numbers are down and we're trying to, I don't want to say rebuild because there is a foundation there, but, you know, reestablish that sense of community when it's it has been fractured to a degree. Um, and the things you say are just so spot on today. And they focus on, they focus on listening, prayer, spirituality. And it's funny because it almost is like the music comes second, not to, <laughs> don't, don't, uh, don't turn off the podcast when I say that. No, but. no, no. I would completely agree with you. I mean, music is a, is a means. It's not an end in itself. It's a means mm -hmm. to get at deeper mysteries. I'd also say this, yes, there is a challenge with COVID um, and come and and if in a sense, regenerating the choirs that we've had. But I actually think there's a second challenge right now that is pervasive, that's deeper than that. And I think the challenge is, and and we're we're kind of with it right now. The challenge is listening. We are not in a, we are not in a society right now that listens well. We are in a society that has been um, drawn and quartered and are angry. And I was just reading an article in, in the New York Times this past week about how pastors and priests are so incredibly burned out because their congregations are so are filled with animosity toward one another. They're not listening to each other. So in a sense right now, that gift of listening is so, so foundational and critical, and it's 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 a an art that we've we're losing, um, and other angry voices are taking over. Um, I will maybe conclude my uh, words, my my bits today by offering one other word, one other set of words, which are Benedictine. It's from the Rule of Saint Benedict: Listen with the ears of your heart. Now, talk about you know combining sense imagery. There, it's one of the best lines by that lovely, lovely monk. Um, listen with the ears of your heart. And I think that actually, if we were to sum up everything from today's interview, it would be that. And I love talking to you, Amanda, because you usually draw this out of me. I wasn't even thinking about this as we were, <laughs> as we were talking, but at the end, it's like, this is very Benedictine. Um, mm. And we are all called um, as musicians to be vulnerable listeners, to listen with the ears of our heart. And that acts as leaven. I think people can sense that through our craft, through our song, that we are modeling for them being vulnerable, not being arrogant, being vulnerable and listening with the listening to each other with the ears of our hearts so that we can be better attentive to everybody. Amen.
Thanks so much to Steve for his time today. Check out one of Steve's latest projects, which is actually a video introducing compositional skills for pastoral musicians. You can find it under the Musical Skills videos, available to standard and premium NPM members under the Members Login area of the website at npm.org. Are you not an NPM member but would like to check out this video, among many others that are there? You can receive a free 30-day trial to NPM today. Take advantage of this free trial by going to npm.org and then using the promo code TRYNPM22. Any questions can be forwarded to membership at npm.org. The recording of Oh God Beyond All Praising was produced by GIA Publications and arranged by Richard Prue. Today's theme music for this episode was written by Aaron Schaus, and today's episode of Ministry Monday was produced by me, Amanda Bruce. That's it for today. With the Spirit's gifts empowering us for the work of ministry, thank you for listening. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here soon on Ministry Monday. <laughs>